0: Hello and welcome to The Knot, a brand new three-part podcast series from Revolving Doors Agency, hosted by me, Claire Runacres. Revolving Doors is a charity that works across England and alongside people with lived experience of the criminal justice system to make the revolving door of personal crisis and crime avoidable and escapable. With the help of some expert academics, practitioners and people with lived experience, we're exploring how poverty, trauma, and multiple disadvantage are knotted together and how we can better respond to these complex interconnections. And don't worry if that felt a bit jargon heavy. Once again, we'll be getting into what we mean by terms like multiple disadvantage with our guests a bit later in the episode. The academics and practitioners you're hearing from in this series were all commissioned by Revolving Door's agency to write an essay on this issue which will all be brought together in an edited collection. The aim of these podcasts is to bring those writers together to explore their research and its implications. What needs to change at a policy, service and community level to unpick the knotted mess of poverty, trauma and multiple disadvantage that brings so much damage and chaos into people's lives? And like we did in the first episode, we're also going to hear from someone who's been directly affected by these knotted issues, which led them into the criminal justice system, and ask them what they make of the research findings. In this episode, we'll be exploring knots around identities and multiple disadvantage, and we'll be looking specifically at the roles gender and race play in affecting people's experiences of multiple disadvantage. Joining me from St Andrews Healthcare, a charity that conducts clinical research and provides specialist mental health care, are Dr. Deborah Morris, consultant clinical psychologist and lead for the Centre for Developmental and Complex Trauma, and her co author, Eleanor Webb, senior research assistant psychologist. And we're also joined by Professor James Nazru, professor of sociology at Manchester University. And later this episode, we'll hear from Francis and find out how Deborah's, Eleanor's, and James's comments resonate or don't with her own personal experience and any additional thoughts, you may have for solutions to the issues discussed. Now, in this series, we're referring a lot to multiple disadvantage, so it's a good place to start today's discussion. Just what does it actually mean? Let's begin with you, James. Multiple disadvantage.
1: Interestingly, multiple disadvantage is not a term I use very much, but uh, in my mind, what this uh, identifies is the ways in which different dimensions of um, disadvantage interact with each other come together and amplify um, dimensions of inequality. So it's the ways in which, say, a disadvantage in employment may relate to a disadvantage in interactions with um, social services and then may result in disadvantages in relation to housing, where people live, et cetera.
0: How about you, Deborah? Does that resonate with, with how you feel, what that term means? Absolutely, and it's how all those different sort
2: of intersections or those different disadvantages come together to make someone's experience of services, accessing services much more difficult. So that might be around race, it might be around gender, it might be around your level of disability. And the more of those um, different needs that you have, the more complex it can be navigating your way through services
0: and actually getting the help and support that you need. Deborah, in your essay, you talk about inclusive gender approaches to providing care. Before we go any further with that, can we define gender? Yep, so gender traditionally has been considered
2: um, based on biology, um, on sex, rather than on your social roles in society. And as time has gone on, it's been increasingly recognised that society... Um, essentially defines your, your gender and your roles within that. So a gender approach for us would be to, it's about your lived experience rather than about your biology. And the impact that that then has on your experiences through life and in your experiences of services. So a gender inclusive approach acknowledges both the gender that you were born with, that you identify with, but also gender minority groups and people who Um, prefer to define themselves as non-binary, so not seeing themselves as falling within male or female genders. The reason for adopting that approach is that your gender will significantly impact on your experiences of trauma, of trauma services, and on the help and support that you need. So it's important to take an inclusive approach, um, because historically people have thought about gender as being specific and developing gender-specific services, so services for women or services for men, but the expense then of other groups.
0: So it's important to acknowledge that different genders across the spectrum will have different needs. Yeah. So in your essay, you talk about inclusive gender and the approaches to trauma-informed care. Can you define trauma-informed care for me? What does it mean?
2: It's a model of care that's been adopted within mental health services in response to quite the profound lifelong impacts that trauma can have. Traditionally, mental health services have had a model of kind of what's wrong with you. And trauma-informed care shifts that focus to what's happened to you. So it very much is about how care is delivered rather than what care is delivered. And it's based on the core principles of building trust, increasing safety, and very much moving away from a model of doctor knows best to people being involved very much in the production of their care and being equal partners of that care as well as ensuring that you have services on offer that can actually meet trauma-specific
0: needs. So it's quite a significant cultural shift. And Eleanor, when you talk about an inclusive gender approach to that, what does that mean? I suppose it's considering gender
3: in the wider sense. So echoing kind of what Deborah said is sort of realizing that gender and sex, whereas before they were sort of seen in parallel. Um, so, you know, you're born at birth, male or female. That's kind of your sex. Gender is kind of a less concrete term and it has become a lot more fluid, um, and changeable. So it's become a more expansive concept. And that's kind of something that
0: we've definitely had to think about. Deborah, you talk about a gender inclusive approach. How would you say that difference from the approach that we have now? I think the approach that
2: we have now is a kind of one model fix all. So there isn't services that are able to be kind of adapted to meet individual needs. So, for example, trauma services at current focus on kind of pure mental health symptoms associated with experienced trauma, such as flashbacks and avoidance. Whereas a gender sensitive approach acknowledges actually for men and ethnic minority groups substance misuse is probably a greater need than some of the core mental health needs for those populations in terms of kind of overcoming trauma as well as the wider social needs so it's about making sure that you have models and services that fit the needs of all of the people that are going to come through your door and I guess critically it's about when you're planning your model from the outset that you treat all groups as having kind of parity of esteem or equal needs rather than being add-ons or others, that otherness and sort of having their
0: needs sort of down the line, which was one of the reasons why we have poor outcomes for some groups in services. And I was fascinated to read in your research, um, in your essay, that in many respects, men are underrepresented in this area. Why is that? I
2: think there are a number of barriers to that in terms of there are lots of kind of cultural norms around women experience more abuse, which certainly the literature does support. But men are more, much more likely to not recognise abusive situations. They're a lot less likely to disclose and they're a lot less likely to go to services. And plus, when they go to services, particularly if you're an ethnic minority male,
0: you're going to be offered medication rather than psychotherapy. And Eleanor, I was reading in your essay about um, how the one area that men do access help for is veteran care. Why do you think that that has really been the only area that we... Overtly see men reaching out for help in.
3: I suppose it kind of fits in with what I was saying before about how gender has become quite more of a, I guess, an expansive construct. So, what we see is in terms of trauma experiences and sort of um, the responses to trauma treatments, is that those very much differ between genders. Incorporating that gender-inclusive approach within trauma-informed care is all about recognising those differences, so those different experiences of trauma and the different barriers that people face in accessing support for trauma and the different responses that people have to trauma treatments as a result of their gender identity.
0: Um, Let's turn to James now, and your essay is called The Central Role of Racism in Shaping the Life of Ethnic Minority People in the UK. Can you tell us what you mean by race and the definition of racism and how it plays a central role in ethnic minority people's lives?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a kind of interesting uh, question to ask for definitions, uh, and and it's easy to move into kind of fairly trite approaches to providing definitions. So I could say race and ethnicity are social constructions, and to a certain extent, of course, they are, but they're also very real in people's lives. Uh, So we have real attachments, real affiliations to our identities, be they gender, ethnic, race, whatever that might be, which then shape the ways in which we live our lives to a certain extent, and of course shape the way in which people um, respond to us. So they are real in a social sense, even if we argue that the constructions that they call upon are in fact um, social constructions. What does that mean? It means that there are kind of historical connections that you might feel in relation to your race and your ethnicity. There are connections with cultural practices, with languages, with places of origin, with broader cultural practices and uh, and so on, that then do become very real in your lives, but also then become very real in the ways in which people interact with you. So they also have understandings of what your ethnicity or your race might be, and therefore how they might uh, respond to you. And that's where um, issues of racism then uh, come to the fore, because some of those constructions are negative. Um, so we might have very positive affiliations to an identity, but others might perceive those in very negative ways, which then lead to racism and racialization of, of groups of people.
0: So it's a two-way street. There's how you feel about yourself and how other people feel about you in that context.
1: Yeah, and of course, the way you feel about yourself and the way in which you you enact and affiliate to your identity depends very much on context. So in contexts where you're ethnicity is comfortable, easy to enact, will be very different from contexts where people are feeling fairly hostile towards your ethnicity. And that that hostility has its origins, of course, in the long legacies of um, uh, European colonialism and the ways in which the uh, denigration of particular ethnic race groups was essential to that um, process of colonisation becomes embedded in Western cultures remains present in Western cultures and to a certain extent remains celebrated in, in Western cultures and therefore is very real in the lives of people today.
0: But there's also a contemporary element to this too. So you've talked about the historical context there, but you know, can you place this idea in a contemporary context?
1: Yeah, 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 for sure. So, so we can think about the ways in which um, race or ethnicity shapes people's everyday encounters on the street going to the shops, interacting with police, interacting with teachers and health services and so on. We can also think about the ways in which our social structures have placed ethnic minority people in particularly vulnerable uh, locations within those structures. And then we can also think about the ways in which our institutions operate and how both those social structures and those interpersonal interactions become embedded within the everyday practices of institutions. And that embeddedness happens in terms of the people who work within those institutions as well. So they draw on institutional cultural frames of reference which then guide their behaviours. What does that mean? Of course, it means a whole series of disadvantages that are faced by people who uh, experience racism. I, I know I'm talking a lot, but just to add a little bit to this, I think it's important to note two things. One is that you don't actually have to experience racism to know that people like you experience racism, and then that undermines your security in society in very fundamental ways. So even if you haven't experienced it, you know people like you who have. And then the other thing that's really important to recognize is that although I'm talking about contemporary times, if we look at contemporary times and the shift in people's experiences of racism, the shifts in prejudice that have happened in contemporary times, we see very, very little improvement. The research we have done shows that over the past 20, 30 years, people's experiences of discrimination, racism have remained moderately consistent and levels of prejudice have remained remarkably consistent.
0: What do you think then is the effect of something like Black Lives Matters?
1: So the kind of recent, the very recent situation where we've seen the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement in response to the murder of George Floyd, of course, in, in the United States, that coupled with the in-our-faces inequalities that uh, have arisen as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic, I think have set in process a potential set of challenges to contemporary social structures, contemporary institutions, to get them to think about what's happening in their sphere of influence. And of course, following Black Lives Matter, we've seen a very large number of institutions rushing to declare their anti-racist stance. What we haven't yet seen, of course, are changes in practices, changes in procedures. And that's what we would like to see. What we're also seeing, and I don't want to be too negative about this, but what we're also seeing is resistance to real change from various um, institutions, various figures, and in the political context as well.
0: And you touch on your essay on the pandemic and how that has laid bare some race equalities.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I think when you have a crisis, You kind of think of a crisis as affecting a population as a whole, but actually there are groups within the population who are extremely vulnerable in the light of a crisis. So when various forms of uh, social systems become threatened by a crisis, those who are in the most vulnerable locations are affected most. We can see that in relation to the COVID-19 pandemic. We see it immediately in terms of health, and so the much higher mortality rates that have been experienced by, I think, minority people. But we also see it in terms of all of the subsequent consequences of attempts to manage the pandemic. So in a lockdown situation, your house environment is absolutely crucial. If you're on the eighth floor in a two-bedroom flat with four children, it's very different from being a couple in a four-bedroom house in a lovely environment, easy access to outside space, a big garden, and so on. One example. Other examples are really what happens when we have economic shutdowns. Who's most vulnerable? Those people who are on part-time contracts, those people who are on fixed-term contracts, those people whose employment contracts are easily shifted. And those are the people who then, of course, have to continue to work in order to maintain their economic security and then become more exposed to infection. This is, I I suppose, where the concept of multiple disadvantages then becomes really very, very apparent. There's a cycle of things happening, coming together that make people particularly vulnerable.
0: Deborah, Eleanor, let me bring you in again now, if I may. What do you hope people will take away from reading your essay? Deborah? shall we start with you? In terms of our essay around gender,
2: I guess in terms of what I want people to take away is the idea that there are alternative models of care that are likely to achieve better outcomes and the continued invisibility of certain populations is something that needs to be factored into service models. The evidence is out there how to support people from different genders. It's about implementing it. So I guess it's that change is possible. The evidence is out there to achieve that. And it will lead to better outcomes. So it's a sensible approach
0: to take. What about you, Eleanor?
3: I'd say it's probably to do with um, social perspectives around male trauma and kind of those gender norms around masculinity. So war-related trauma is seen as the acceptable form of male trauma whereas other forms of trauma so for example sexual abuse often males who have experienced this kind of trauma report that this this kind of I suppose um, it challenges their sense of masculinity and how they think um, others will perceive them so yeah I'd say it's definitely to do with the social perspectives of what is acceptable male trauma.
0: James, Claire, oh sorry yes Claire sorry
2: could I go back onto a point that James made if that's okay just to kind of adds a dynamic to
0: the conversation. Of course, please do. We would like this to be a discussion, so yes. I
2: think I was struck, James, about what you said about kind of the lack of improvement in the situation. We hear lots of rhetoric over the years, but we haven't actually seen any substantial change. And I think one area of mental health services where you see that most definitely is in the use of the Mental Health Act and mental health legislation with people from minority groups. And, you know, for many, many years, uh, over 20 years, we know that Black males in particular are significantly more likely to be detained under the Mental Health Act. They're more likely to be detained under kind of more restrictive parts of the Mental Health Act. Now, in secure services where trauma needs are endemic, you come into a secure hospital essentially because you've had very kind of traumatic early lives, is that we see that pattern still continuing about sort of the disproportionate application of very restrictive parts of Ministry of Justice led um, elements of the Mental Health Act, and most recently, we have seen that in relation to children detained under the Mental Health Act, we've seen very clear racial differences in our own research of showing that if you are a black male with learning disabilities, you are significantly more likely to be de- detained under the more restrictive parts of the Act for very similar care needs and risk needs compared to a white child. So, I would echo that the the situation isn't improving despite many years of Being told that the Mental Health Act and our legislation is used in a disproportionate way,
0: we're not seeing any improvements in how it is applied. So, James, is that the take-home message from your piece of work, do you think?
1: I think Deborah has raised a crucially important issue, and one that kind of crystallizes um, the ways in which uh, we see um, ethnic race inequalities in in contemporary societies. So so this has been going on for 40 or 50 years. We've had documented much higher rates of admission, and particularly in compulsory contexts, to mental health services for severe mental illness for ethnic minority people. And actually this is now the contemporary evidence shows that this is present not just for Black men and not just for young Black men, but for Black women as well. It's also present for South Asian uh, uh, people, but perhaps not to the same kind of extent. And it has been something that's been a focus of policy concern for at least 30 years, with numerous investigations and numerous policy shifts to try and address it. Why is it not being fixed? Why is it so difficult to fix? And you can see something very parallel in the criminal justice system. And so it's something, in my view, about the ways in which coercive institutions that rely on coercion operate in our society, what their function is in in our society, which is in part to regulate segments of the population that are perceived to be a threat. A crucial dimension of racism is the ways in which it draws on symbolic representations of groups. Fear, danger, disgust. Three emotions that are present in our symbolic representations of ethnic minority groups. And as a consequence, the ways in which we respond, the ways in which institutions respond to those groups, are particularly um, coercive, particularly negative. Important to note, of course, that actual participation in criminal activity or symptoms of severe mental illness are not usually raised in these groups hugely raised in these groups are rates of arrest and rates of detention and rates of sectioning. And so there's a disjuncture between, as Deborah said, between need and between coercive treatment. So take-home message. I I think the key take-home message that I would like to come from my essay, and and I may not have presented it entirely explicitly, is that there is room for action despite what I've just said. There is room for action. So we need to think about the ways in which we understand the inequality and then progress to action. And I've tried to argue that if we think about the ways in which racism operates in our society, then we can then begin to identify ways in which we can act. And crucial to this from my perspective is the ways in which institutions can reconfigure what they do in order to address um, racism within their practice. And it is pretty much a, a similar argument to the one around gender inclusivity. It's about thinking from the top to the bottom how your institution operates and making sure that you pay explicit attention to addressing uh, racism within that institution, whether it's about the people you employ or the services you provide, that you embed this thoroughly into institutional practices. If institutions change, and that has knock-on effects to the ways in which social structures operate and knock-on effects to the ways in which we as people operate in our uh, lives.
0: So we've heard what the academics and practitioners have to say, but what about those with lived experience of such issues? Let's bring in Frances. Hello. Hi. Can I ask you a little bit about yourself and how you got involved in the Revolving Doors project?
4: Yes. So I guess it must have been around two years ago. I had an episode, a mental health episode, and I was arrested. I was taken to the police station and detained for some time. I was then introduced to an L&D officer, liaison and diversion officer, who then I got in touch with them and I had peer support from them and then they got me in touch with Revolving Doors and I've been volunteering with them ever since and so I was abused from a very early age, sexually abused from an early age and I hadn't disclosed this to anybody. And I think that had a detrimental effect on the way I perceived relationships and how I went into relationships. So then I later found myself in abusive relationships and then using substances as a means to kind of quell kind of any emotions that I had. And that progressively got worse. And so, yeah, it was the case of me using um, drugs and alcohol and becoming out of character, wild and aggressive, and hence the police had to be called.
0: Um, And what was that moment like when
4: you connected with the criminal justice system? For me, it wasn't the first time that I've ever had that experience of being arrested, but what I felt was it was just this kind of underlying attitude of here goes this kind of angry young black woman who just seems to be off her head. Let's just kind of quickly put her into the prison cell and shut her up they didn't bother to ask if i was okay if i had any men underlying mental health issues i wasn't i actually had have a social worker so i wasn't able to access any kind of healthcare or you know anyone to talk to really and up until like later on the latter stage of my um, time in in the cell and i just felt like as this they didn't really Try to under, understand why I was going through what I was going through. It was more of this seen as I'm being punished for reacting, or, but not understanding why I'm reacting the way I am. So you feel like it compounded your levels of trauma;
0: and made it much worse.
4: Absolutely. I mean, prior to that, there was an incident where I um, I was six months, six or seven months pregnant with my son. Um, at the time and my partner at the time was being abusive the police were called and I had hit him with a wet flannel which I shouldn't have done but I felt that that was my only form of defense and um, I was then subsequently arrested with my ex-partner because I had used kind of the flannel to hit him and kind of protecting myself and when I when I went into prison not prison sorry um detained for that time they didn't even really look at me because I was six months pregnant they didn't think to check to see how the health care of my baby was how I was doing kind of just left me there as well so it's just always this kind of lack of compassion and just seeing you as someone who's done something wrong and not actually really caring about your welfare or the welfare of your child And, and that has been my experience do you think that people within these
0: systems jump to
4: conclusions based on your your gender and your race? I think absolutely. I mean, it's interesting because me as a black woman, I subconsciously have to kind of take into account what white people may think of me. So, if I'm going into a shop, especially cuz I'm wear I wear a, a wrap around my head as part of my cultural identity, People don't know how to perceive that. So one, I'm black. Two, I've got this wrap around my head. I could be Muslim, whatever. You can see fear in people's faces. So me as a black person, it feels like it's my responsibility to quell any kind of ideas that you may have of me, which which shouldn't be my responsibility. So it's another added level of baggage that I, I shouldn't have to carry. And it's sad. And I think because of that, even within the black people ourselves, we have this idea of colorism. And and that that was also due obviously to the British colonialism and this idea, the lighter colored you are, the fairer you are, the more accepted you are in maybe mainstream media or whatever, and the darker you are, therefore you're not really listened to, you're aggressive, you're this kind of bad person.
0: I wondered if listening to what James had to said about So the the two levels of of racism where there is an an outside perceived racism, but also your own identity, the way you view other people seeing you. Did that strike a a chord
4: with you? So in terms of outside institutions, um, such as like um, social services, I, I feel that from my experience, they just seem to have this lack of understanding and knowledge about people's different cultural backgrounds. Just something as simple as that. And kind of assuming that all black people are the same or all black people come from the same, we have this same identities, which is, which is wrong. We're different. And it's, I think it's we need to take time to really have a conversation about people's different identities. That's very important. And for myself, and I have a, a young son who is 12 years of age and he's black. And so for me, it's very important to have these conversations with him, because this is something that he is going to experience or probably has experienced on a day-to-day basis. How do I say to a 12-year-old boy, oh, by the way, you know, you're because you are a black child, people are gonna perceive you as you're angry or you're gonna be fighting, or because of you know, you see every every time on social media in the newspapers, always talking about black boys being arrested and all these kind of things. So I have to educate my son and myself and be able to have these open and brutally honest conversations with him about how irrespective of who he is and what his skin color is, he just tries to remain to be a a civil and a good, kind human being, which we all should do. But um, it's sad that I even have to have this conversation with him. That's my point. <laughs> I think that's the that's the saddest point.
0: I wondered what you thought needed to change so that we wouldn't have to have these conversations in the future.
4: I think just having these brutally honest conversations as we are now, that's that's very important. Actually, uh, funny enough, another funny thing in culture. My background is Ugandan and um so what my grandfather did for my dad and his sisters, interestingly enough, was he gave all his sons English names. And the reason why he did that was because knowing if they were going to go and apply for jobs, just your surname alone could be at a disadvantage for you. So it's all those kind of things where we're kind of trying to take away our culture and our identity as people from ethnic minorities and trying to fit into this kind of more Western ideal why can't we all try and be more inclusive and celebrate diversity
0: absolutely Frances it's so valuable to hear your experiences is is there anything else that you want to reflect on having heard what the other people have talked about maybe about gender specifically a
4: gender one is um, an interesting one for me I haven't really felt that my gender has really disadvantaged me in any way, to be honest, in my own personal experience. What this experience has done for me was been able to allow me to reach out to people such as myself, who probably don't have the voice or the confidence to talk about the issues that they have. And for me, to be able to be there and kind of show to other people who actually you know can help one another and this is why it's so important to have people of ethnic minorities in organizations let them be there at the forefront so people can identify with them and realize that it's not just you know this kind of whitewashing of everything we need to see the more ethnic faces in these high places and and hear their voices when
0: it comes to changing policy presumably absolutely Frances, thank you so much for your fresh perspective and comments and for joining us today, offering really valuable insights. Thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. So, James, Deborah, Eleanor, you've heard Frances' thoughts there. James, shall we start with you? Does her story chime with what you found in your research then?
1: I think Frances' story is absolutely insightful. I mean, the, the, the issue she identifies both um, broadly, but also in terms of her own personal experience really... Illustrate um, the kind of points that I've been trying to make. These are the kind of stories that, of course, inform the work that we do. And uh, yeah, absolutely insightful account from Francis.
0: Has it led you to any fresh conclusions, do you think, listening to her story?
1: I think the crucial thing here, um, or one crucial thing here, there are many crucial things here. The one crucial thing here, I think, is, is the ways in which Francis describes how she has to live her life, how she has to shape uh, and inform the life of her, her son. In the context of the um, negative perceptions, hostility that they um, are at risk of perce- receiving, and it just shows how racism penetrates our society to very, very deep levels. I think, yeah.
0: Deborah, did you feel that Francis's real life experience intersected with your research? Absolutely. First of all, Francis, thank you for being so open and for
2: allowing people to, I guess, understand that these are not abstract ideas. These are these are kind of real people's lives that are affected. I think it it resonated on two levels is one, what what we see within secure services that often people's needs relating to trauma, long-standing trauma, are missed until they enter the criminal justice system or until they're arrested. And there is something about people's needs not being picked up earlier by mental health service or statutory services. But I think, Francis, you, you hit on something that's really important in terms of gendered approaches to trauma care, and that is within trauma care, we need to start thinking more broadly outside of mental health needs and start thinking about the whole life impact that trauma can have on gender. I'm thinking particularly about, you said about maternity services. And I think the idea that, you know, the trauma needs need to be reflected not just in terms of mental health services, but also in physical health care and physical needs services, which are obviously gender-based Um, And making sure that those needs are reflected in your journey through those services. And if you've got a history of trauma plus other needs, your journey through those services can be incredibly challenging in the history and context of abuse. So from my point of view, I thought, Frances, you illustrated really well, beautifully, the importance of making sure physical health needs and the whole needs
0: of women are met through gendered trauma-informed care models. And how about you, Eleanor? What did listening to Francis make you feel about the work you've done?
3: So I suppose throughout this whole process, something which I'm obviously conscious of is the fact that I am a white female. Um, So for me, um, hearing about the experiences of people who have gone through these experiences themselves and do face these disadvantages, which I have no experience of, is incredibly valuable. Something which um, Francis did mention, which um, I think really resonates with the whole idea of um, trauma-informed care, is um, this idea of compassion. And I know Deborah spoke about it earlier, shifting the question to um, what is it that happened to you? And Frances spoke about how having that kind of compassion at the point when she kind of needed it um, would have been really useful. That was definitely something which I think, obviously speaking to Frances, has really kind of highlighted.
1: There was just one other issue that I, I wanted to flag up in, in relation to gender, which which really struck me from Francis's uh, account, and her account of her first um, arrest. Um, when her partner was uh, abusing her and she defended herself. And and this is the kind of gender-agnostic approach to domestic violence, domestic abuse, which seems to have permeated um, our legal system, which, which just seems to me to be absolutely wrong. The ways in which gender shapes domestic violence is absolutely important to understand. This isn't Francis's story, of course, but I've interviewed people where a woman describes um, being brutalized by her partner, and to equate that to her hitting him back and stopping the violence is is just nonsense. So again, gender sensitivity, we do have this kind of gender agnostic approach to things which is just um, just not helpful to people.
0: so we've we've highlighted very clearly, both with France's personal experience and also with your research, you know the issues that are, are at play here. Whose responsibility is it to uh, unknock these knotted issues? James, what do you think?
1: So as, as the word knots implies, the, these are incredibly difficult um, problems. The notion of multiple disadvantage also suggests that. There's no easy solutions then as a, as a consequence. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't try. And I think the work of uh, people like me is in, intending to kind of create a space where we can begin to think about um, uh, solutions. So if we think about the complexity of the ways in which racism operates in our society, then we can begin to think about solutions. Now, I've, I've tried to argue that we need to focus on institutions and the relationships between institutions and ways in which institutions can be restructured reframed, reshape their purpose in order to address inequality and the ways in which they amplify inequalities. I think that's absolutely crucial. And you can think about that in, for example, the example that we have here is the way the criminal justice system operates in relation to the mental health system, but you can also think about it in terms of education. Uh, so think about the experiences of Francis's son, for example. And so how all those institutions operate together is absolutely crucial, but how each operates in isolation is also crucial. But you can't just leave it there. You know, we have a political leadership, a political leadership that sets a will, that sets a direction. And we have to insist that our political leaders pay attention to these issues um, and pay attention to them seriously, rather than just tokenistically or, or even dismissively, as we found in the long run from the Black Lives Matter movement. Institutions that we're embedded with have acknowledged issues of racism, but they've done no more.
0: Deborah, where do you think the
2: responsibility lies? To agree, I would echo what James was saying about sort of political leadership and about um, service configuration structures. I think there are two other layers to this. Is one, I think there's also responsibility in clinical leadership. There is something about our mental health services that means they remain inaccessible to large numbers of people. And whilst it's important to levy responsibility to institutions and service structures, I think there's also responsibility in how health professionals are selected and trained to make sure that they reflect the population that we that we support, but also to make sure that the embedding of of the importance of, of, of disadvantages within training are not tokenistic, as James has flagged up. And all too often, these measures are tokenistic. I think aside from kind of the cultural change within those services, I think there's also responsibilities within research and service development to make sure that when we carry out um, evaluations, when we carry out research, that we don't assume and generalise our data to different groups and to make sure that they are reported according to different ethnicities, to different genders, and making sure that the needs of the whole population are reflected in research models. At the moment, I think there is still a practice where gender and race are seen as afterthoughts within research to look to see whether results can generalise those populations rather than recognise that they're meant as core needs. So I think at all levels, um, particularly I think in also in grassroots practitioners and in researchers as well, have responsibilities.
0: But I would echo what James says about um, tokenism. So, Eleanor, would you agree with that? That, um, you know, recruitment is an issue, for instance. Yeah, definitely.
3: Um, I suppose in terms of where the responsibility lies in terms of having these discussions, I'd say that's the responsibility for everyone. Thinking about where the responsibility lies. So in relation to um, implementing gender mainstreaming and overcoming those kind of gender barriers, for example. So in the essay, we talk about this being a top down process. So. It's a process that requires major cultural shifts and that comes from institutions, places like the government. Um, But I think also we have a responsibility as individuals as well to think about that. So I suppose linking back to what Deborah was saying about bringing this into research, it's it's kind of that encouraging people to think about where can they also think about how ways that gender mainstreaming can be implemented and ways that they can overcome this kind of gender inequality that we do see.
0: Thank you. If there's one overriding thing that you would like to see change to reflect your research and changing society as a consequence of your research, you know, what would it be? What would that one key change you would like to see be? Deborah, shall we start with you? I think an
2: acknowledgement that gender is not about gender specific. It's about being inclusive and recognising that there are a spectrum of needs. And then if you approach all genders as one group, you're going to have very poor outcomes for your services that you develop. So it's important to develop services that reflect a multitude of needs. How about you,
3: LNM? I suppose kind of echoing what Deborah said is not placing genders on hierarchies. So, for example, what we often see at the moment is a lot of services being developed uh, to respond to female needs, other than developing services which can adapt and respond to the needs of people across the gender spectrum. Um, so I'd say, yes, recognising gender as a, an expansive spectrum. Thank you. James?
1: I think I'd like to see a move away from easy recourse to the vague term of systemic racism in that tokenistic way that I was describing earlier. Vague, not because racism doesn't permeate all of our lives. Of course, systemic racism is present, but because it provides no route to action. So to think about the ways in which racism actually operates in people's lives and then to think about the ways in which um, we might uh, redress that rather than to just simply name systemic racism.
0: Another fascinating discussion in this series of The Knot, responding to poverty, trauma, and multiple disadvantage. Some compelling thoughts and observations in the way identities and multiple disadvantage intersect, together with potential ways to solve the issues. I'd like to thank my guests in this second episode. Dr. Deborah Morris, consultant clinical psychologist and lead for the Centre for Developmental and Complex Trauma at St. Andrews Healthcare. Her co-author, Eleanor Webb, Senior Research Assistant Psychologist. Professor James Nazaru, Professor of Sociology at Manchester University. And Frances, for sharing her story and a fresh perspective on the research. And thank you for listening. I've been your host, Claire Runacres. To discover more about the work of Revolving Doors, or to get involved yourself, check out www.revolving-doors.org.uk. And don't forget, you can also join the conversation on Twitter and Instagram. Our handle on Twitter is at Rev and on Instagram, at Revolving Doors Agency. Please do subscribe to the series. And while you're there, we appreciate you rating and reviewing this episode. And in the next episode, the final one in this special three-part series, another panel of experts and someone with lived experience will be here as we explore the connections between childhood trauma, adversity, and multiple disadvantage.